Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. The NCAA tournament is ever so close, and I know people are anxiously anticipating filling out their brackets. And because of that, uh, I'm hoping to offer some insight on how to help win your NCAA tournament pool. But I've also brought along a friend today, Ed Fang. He has a PhD in chemical engineering from Stanford, also an undergraduate degree in chemical engineering. That's from Rice. His site, The Power Rank, is an incredible tool for predictive analysis on college football and college basketball. And his written work has appeared in Grantland, Bleacher Report, Business Week, Deadspin, and 538. He hosts his own podcast called The Football Analytics Show. And the reason why I'm talking to Ed today, in addition to the fact that he's a great guest and uh, a guy I really enjoy talking to, he has a book entitled How to Win Your NCAA Tournament Pool which I just finished reading. I love it. And I think everyone out there needs to read it. So first of all, Ed Fang, welcome to the Great Point Podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Adam. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you, Ed. And, and, you know, it's funny, sometimes on shows you'll hear people say, hey, I read your book and and someone had actually, uh, you know, given them some cliff notes or something. But I actually did read through your your book there. It's uh, You can hold it in your hand. Uh, well, I guess you can do that with all books, but it's it's a tiny book. But it is power packed with with information, and uh, and I think last year I had John right before the NCAA tournament, and and one of the things I remember you discussing was just the idea of pool size in general. Can you explain why it is so important to choose your uh, the pool you're entering uh, based upon how many other people are actually in it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, Adam, thank you so much for reading it. Um, it's uh, I, I really appreciate that, and I definitely like. I try to keep the book short. I don't want to waste anyone's time with any of the words or the content in there. So it's, uh, I definitely wanted to make it short. It's about 10,000 words. You can get through it pretty quick. Um, yeah, so pool size. So this is, you know, if I had to take anyone off the street and they asked me anything about what to do to win their NCAA pool, well, the first thing you tell them is, like, don't get in a huge pool. And the reason is because of randomness. So you all know about your grandma who doesn't know the difference between Nick Saban and John Calipari. And she goes out picking these crazy Sweet 16 teams, crazy Elite t- 8 teams, you know, these teams that no one has any clue of, um, you know, before the tournament. And she goes even crazier and picks Villanova to win last year. Actually, it wasn't entirely crazy. But the more people that are in your pool, the more likely someone is to get lucky and to beat you. And kind of the rule of thumb for me is, like, I, w- I wouldn't recommend anything bigger than 100 people. Uh, anything more than that, and you're really kind of you're leaving yourself out there um, for someone to make these uh, crazy picks and and beat you. And um, you know, I, I show some plots in the book about just you know how your win rate, even with the best analytics, um, really goes down pretty sharply as a function of pool size. And um, and and it's because of this luck. It's because of grandma that uh, and and you know cousin Betty that doesn't know anything about college basketball making these <laughs> lucky picks. Okay, so you know people can look at that and say, "All right, I, I can understand that 
you know, if there's a pool of, you know, eight of my closest friends compared to, you know, getting into some ESPN or Yahoo pool that's got, you know, millions of entrants, then obviously I'm, I'm going to have a better chance. Um, but uh, there, what you what you bring up, though, is vital. And I think people do do miss the boat on that. So that's that's important. The pool size, you get that out of the way right away. Now, in your book, you lay out some some different strategies there. Um, one of them, obviously, a, a pool size. Another one that you bring up is that for larger pools, you need to pick a contrarian champion that has a large win probability, but a small fraction of the public picking them. Can you explain that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the idea is that you want, it again, goes back to the randomness and the same type of randomness I talked about with the pool size. So um, let's go back to 2015. Kentucky was undefeated going into the tournament and a huge, huge favorite. So what happens? You go into, you go into a pool of 50. Um, in addition, you live in Kentucky, right? So what happens? You go into this pool and you pick Kentucky to be the champ because, you know, my number is given by a 36% chance to win, to win the pool. Now, if Kentucky actually wins that pool, um, everyone gets that 32 points for picking that champion. And then what happens is if there's a lot of people still left, then one of those people is going to get lucky, just like Cousin Betty did earlier, with and you know have some sleeper elite eight picks or final four picks that no one else had, and that's going to end up sinking you. So the, the way to think contrarian is to think like, well, I don't, I don't want to be in um, a pool with, I don't want to be, I don't want to have Kentucky to have the champion and be stuck with everyone else. I'll take my chances. I'll pick like a Duke who has a decent win probability, and I think that year they had about 12 13% chance. I'll take Duke, and if they actually win, then no one else in my pool will have Duke. So if I'm in a 50-person pool, like maybe one or other, maybe one or two other people might have Duke winning. If and when Duke wins, um, you get the 32 points for picking the champion that no one else gets. And then, you know, pretty solid analytics that you can follow on my side or Ken Palm or, or Nate Silver should be able to take you home to victory. So it worked super awesome in, in 2015. Um, you know, and I want to be very clear, like these methods are, there's no guarantee with the methods in my book that you're going to win. There's always lots of randomness. Last year, the contrarian pick was Virginia, a team I really, really liked. Uh, Malcolm Brogdon, great defensive team. And they look good. They're about to hit the final four when Syracuse just started dropping threes. And, and ended that ended in people's pools that, that had Virginia in there. But what I do in the book is I actually show the research behind, um, you know, I simulate a ton of pools, I simulate a ton of, ton of tournaments, and I show how your win probability can increase if you make these contrarian choices. Ed, you hit on something that I, I appreciate so much about you, and that is the fact that the understanding of randomness and the understanding that so much goes into you know, the analytics that we can't necessarily put our finger on. You know, it's funny because I I think you and I have discussed this at length, the idea that, you know, statistics can can sort of get us, you know, and analytics and um, uh, problem solving, if you have all of the information, can probably get your answer to, to any question that you have. The problem ultimately becomes that we don't have all of the information to start with. And so, right. you know, thinking that analytics is the end all 
is, I think, just as foolish as thinking that the purest point of view is is the end all. And what I mean by the purest point of view is, you know, the eye test or some guy who's watched basketball for a long time or, you know, a, a, a college assistant coach isn't going to fill out the perfect bracket every time. And again, for reasons that we don't know all of the information, we don't know if someone's been nursing an injury. We don't know if there's issues within a coaching staff. Uh, sometimes a coach gets an assistant coach gets fired before the NCAA tournament. We saw that happen last year with Cal. Uh, and mm-hmm. and you don't know how much that's going to impact the team. Some some players might not be yep. impacted, although others might. Then there's the fact that um, you know a guy's girlfriend might have broken up with him the night before, or guys might might be partying too hard. So so all of this information, and that's just sort of off the court stuff. Uh, never mind the on the court yep. stuff that, that factors in. Um, yeah, no, and I think that I think what you mentioned is, is is really critical. We don't have a lot of information, and it might seem like thirty some games is a lot of data. You know, even though we have thirty some games right now to assess these teams, and usually that's good. Usually that's a good amount of data for me to be pretty confident in the predictions um, that I have. It's not perfect, like you said. Like we'd rather have eighty two games, like we have in the NBA, which is not as good as 162 games that we have in baseball, which is still not perfect. Um, so anyways, usually 30-some games, we have a pretty good assessment. A lot of the, you know, the team rankings that you see out there can give some pretty good predictions uh, heading into the tournament. That's really not the case this year. And that's the one thing that I really love to talk to you about because, like, some of these team rankings are way off. I ran some numbers, and it said Gonzaga had a 33% chance to win this tournament, and that's just way too high. And Ooh. what you have is you have a team, you have teams like Gonzaga and West Virginia that have really overachieved this year. They've played really well, uh, especially West Virginia. Just had some really big wins in the early season where they're blowing people out with that press. Um, it's inflating their team rankings. Uh, Gonzaga is a fantastic team. I think should be one of the prime contenders for the tournament, but they're not a one in three shot of winning this tournament. And then you got teams like Duke and Kentucky that are probably more talented than both of those teams, but have really underachieved this year. And so it's it's really a case this year where these points-based systems are not as good as they usually are. To that point, so we're going to get to the team specifically, obviously. I want to dive into this. But I want people listening to this to first understand where you you get your methods. And again, and and if it feels like I'm doing an infomercial for your book, you know, I I probably am only because I believe in it. And I think for people out there, the most important point to me about why you should pick up this book is that... Ultimately, it gives you a strategy as to how to approach winning your bra- you know, your pool, whether it's at work, whether it's with your friends, whether it's online, what have you. But it gives you a strategy to winning that also allows you to incorporate your own feelings about things. It's it's just giving Absolutely. you sort of a guide, Absolutely. and I think that's what's great about this book. So all that, and and uh, and then we can talk about you know the teams and and how we both feel about them. But Ed, as far right. as it, it pertains to the rankings that you put up on you know the power rank and how you uh, assemble how good a team is, you were just talking about Gonzaga thirty three percent chance of of winning. Where do you arrive at that number? Yeah. Okay. So it all starts with uh, the college basketball team rankings that I do. This is uh, it's free on the site. You can go to thepowerrank.com and just click under college basketball rankings. Um, so what I do for that is I take all the games that we've had so far this season, and then I look at the margin of victory, which is a really important variable. Um, you know, teams that have larger margin of victories tend to win more games. 
And then I take that margin of victory and I use an algorithm that I developed that adjusts for strength of schedule. Um, so, for example, Kansas plays a really tough schedule in the Big 12. Uh, my numbers would adjust for that. Gonzaga does not play as good a schedule in the West Coast Conference, even though they have some really good competition out of out of conference. But so, well, my I mean, my my system still has Gonzaga first, but the calculation there is that well, they've beaten all these West Coast Conference teams by so much that I still consider Gonzaga the top ranked team. So it's a balance between margin of victory, which we know even as a raw statistic is a very good assessment of team strength, but then the algorithm makes adjustments for schedule. Um, okay, so then you have the team rankings. Uh, based on the team rankings, it gives a win probability for any two teams on a neutral court, which is, you know, easily. Uh, we're lucky that the, the tournament happens on these neutral sites. And so the team rankings give a win probability. And then based on that win probability, you can work out, you know, obviously you get the win probability that Gonzaga would be whatever 16 team that they play in the first round. But then you can also work out the chance that Gonzaga makes it through each round. And that's what I show on another part of my site. Uh, if you go under predictions and, and you click on March Madness, there's an interactive bracket, um, which is definitely the coolest thing on my site. I had a friend make that a couple of years ago. But you can play with the data. You can look at, you know, not just the chance that every team is going to win the tournament, but how the chance that they advance through each round of the tournament. And the last question about how you arrived there, Ed, is that in your book, you talked about how Google actually had an interesting algorithm that you sort of borrowed the theory from? Yeah, absolutely. It was, um, uh, so Google, you know, if, 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 you're old, if you're old like us, Adam, and you remember what web search was like in the late 90s, like, it was awful. You would type in <laughs> Adam Stanko and you would, you would get you would get craziness. Like, it, it just didn't, I mean, none of the results made any sense. And then Google came along and said, well, let's put some math to this problem. And they invented this thing called PageRank, where you use the link structure of the web in order to, um, in order to figure out what site was important. And so the idea there was that, you know, like a Yahoo, uh, back then Yahoo was the biggest thing on the internet. And so it was pretty easy to tell that Yahoo was an important site because a lot of other sites link to Yahoo. But what they did was like, well, if Yahoo sent an outgoing link to adamsenko.com, that was an indication to the algorithm that adamsenko.com was, was a site that was important because it got links from other important sites. Right. And, and so I started studying that, and, and basically the same thing applies to sports. And, and what my algorithm does is it says, well, you are a good team if you beat other good teams. And um, not only if you beat other good teams, but even if you stay close in a good team, uh, to a good team, that helps uh, your rating. And so, um, you know, the, I take the link structure of the web, I apply it to sports in the, in the sense that, like, um, you know, the, the websites are now teams, and then the links are these games that are played between teams. And, uh, yeah, so I, I just started reading about what Google was doing, thought it would be really cool to apply it to sports. And, um, you know, there's a little work that you have to be doing there. You can't just directly take page rank and, and apply it to sports. But, yeah, that's how the power rank got started. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty lucky that I stumbled across that when I did. Well, I, I 
think that you would have come up with an algorithm um, one way or another just because of, uh, you know, how bright you are and how, how you approach these things, I, I find to be pretty fascinating. So let, let's talk now just about about the teams in general. And, and, and you had me on your podcast and I've You're talked welcome. to people about this. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, on, uh, you know, I've been interviewed about this and all that I have a sort of a, a five keys to NCAA tournament success for teams to win yep. the uh, NCAA tournament. And and they are excellent point guard play. Most notably, you probably need at least an NBA, you know, close to an NBA level point guard running the show for you. Um, multiple NBA players, at least three to four players who who at one point in time will be playing in the NBA. Now, that could mean you and I have discussed this. A cup of coffee in the NBA could be a 10-day contract. It could be a 10-year career. Right. But regardless, just having multiple guys who have NBA-type talent on, on the roster. Uh, a rim protector, uh, someone who can um, help uh, defend shots when, you know, obviously the other team is down low in the post, um, you know, and also rim protection often means a missed layup on one end means a, a fast break opportunity for a layup on the other end. A go-to scorer, a guy you can rely on uh, to get you a bucket, not just late in games, but also when when momentum has sort of shifted to the other team, who do you go to? who can create their own shot and just get you a basket. And then three-point shooting, uh, I think, is critical. Usually more than one three-point shooter um, so that, uh, you know, teams, three-point shooting changes the momentum of games. You talked about this, you know, in your book, actually, at length, about the idea that, uh, you know, if you rely too heavily on the three, it could harm you. But but certainly yep. three-point shooting is such an important piece to, to college basketball. So I, I want to yep. lay that out for people. So you sort of have my approach to the criteria for what really makes a team that's championship quality level. And I, and I always say the big thing to remember from my perspective is that you have to win six games in a row. And when you break it down that way, forget the idea of a bracket, forget seedings, uh, forget, you know, school mascots or, you know, high ratings for television. At the end of the day, we're talking about which college basketball teams have the potential despite who they're matched up against, and matchups are vitally important, but despite who they're matched up against, to win six straight games, because only one team is going to to be able to do that. So all that being said, that's, that's, that's my side of the table. So, Ed, let's first of all talk uh, about the guys currently considered the one seeds right now. And I think that would be for most people. We'll go by Joe Lenardi for right, for right now. But, but in general, I think people could agree on these. Kansas, Gonzaga... North Carolina, Villanova, and granted, for me as a Pac-12 guy, I would argue that Oregon probably will deserve, and, and the Pac-12 champion, assuming that it's going to be Oregon in the tournament, or even UCLA, I think would deserve that one seed in the West. But regardless, let's stick with what we got right now from from Lenardi. Give me your take on on how you uh, how you view those those four one seeds right now. Yeah, you know, and I think this is a kind of a perfect example of what I was saying earlier in terms of um, like the points statement, the points based. Uh, team rankings that I've actually just been telling you guys about are are not the strongest guy in, in in the sense that like I think out of those four teams I like North North Carolina the most, um, mm-hmm. and they happen to be like the lowest ranked team by points. I mean they're fifth, which is not terrible, um, but there are teams that I think. Well, I actually have them ahead of Kansas in my team rankings. Um, I think all I think all the four of those teams are really solid. Uh, we already talked about Gonzaga a bit. Great team. Um, I just, um, I just kind of doubt the talent level of that team compared to everyone else. I think that's the team that's been uh, excellent. You know, Morphe's done a great job coaching. Um, I do think they're one of the primary contenders 
But, you know, for me, I, I, I think this North Carolina team is particularly fascinating. They're really good on both sides of the ball. They have a lot of senior leadership, guys that have been there. And, you know, unlike last year for the same team, I really get the sense that these guys play well together and are, and are really calm um, and, and just, just know how to make things work. Uh, if you want me to put some math behind that, another thing that I do on my site is I, I look at what the market thinks of all these teams. And, you know, the team, the team rankings I was telling you about earlier use margin of victory in actual games to rank teams. What the market rankings do is I use the closing point spreads of all the games to rank teams. And North Carolina is the top team by those numbers. And of all the teams that I've seen play, I think I like that they kind of give me the most confidence. Kansas might be a little bit of a second, but I think um, from both that and from Washington play, um, I like North Carolina of those teams. You know, it's interesting. Yet I, I think you look at North Carolina, from my perspective, they check all the boxes. I mean, Justin right. Jackson, you look at as a guy who's, you know, best player in the ACC this year, um, yep. you know, is your is your preeminent go-to scorer. Joel Berry is a point guard who will be playing in the NBA at some point, certainly has that that talent level to be there, certainly the leader of the team, a guy that gets everybody else going. Um, you know, Kennedy Meeks down low, plus other talent spread out through throughout the roster. Um, this team just sort of has it all. I feel like, you know, they've got great right. balance. And, and and you talk about that that supreme confidence, that poise. You know, sometimes um I I would imagine that, you know, I guess you could you could build a, a formula that would factor in, you know, how a team is playing heading into the tournament. But I guess I'm curious from your perspective, how much does actually, you know, a team's last ten or twelve games truly factor into how successful they'll be in the tournament? Yeah, I mean I think the research shows like not very much. Um, uh, I, yeah, I don't. I don't think it matters too much. Um, I think it, it, it matters more if you've really seen this team play. So, for example, like I live here in Ann Arbor, I follow the Michigan team pretty closely, and you cannot have possibly have watched the team all season and not thought that their defense has gotten better than from January. Um, so, but, you know, in general, but in general, like kind of looking at the last 10 games, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to put overemphasis in that, that um, just because, you know, it's a pretty long season. Uh, you know, those, those early games do matter. And, uh, and yeah, I just try not to put too much emphasis on it. So, but one thing I want to bring up with you, Adam, uh, in terms of yeah, North Carolina, is that, you know, Roy Williams has not really gone the one and done route. and you know, if they do end up winning, and then we had Villanova as a champ last year, like, does that kind of change the college basketball mindset of some of these coaches? Because it's kind of, you know, it's always been this um, this idea that you need to have the most talented teams. And it's not like I don't agree with that. Talent wins basketball games. I don't care what numbers they have. Talent wins basketball games. But how do you get to that talent, right? Like, do you, you know, are you going to see maybe some of these coaches more having a, you know, a North Carolina type strategy in which you're trying to get some more three, four year guys in there, you know, still NBA level talent like a Justin Jackson, but maybe, you know, not go after Harry Giles that's hurt and, you know, was the top consensus top recruit, but really hasn't been an asset for that two team. You know, it's, that's an amazing question. And I think, I think it really is somewhat complicated because I think, first of all, yeah. to understand where one and dones are important is to understand, you know, um, 
the NBA role in that and the NBA contract structure role. And so what I mean by that is you have, um, you know, a high school All-American guy makes a McDonald's All-American list. Anybody that's a McDonald's All-American is is under the assumption they are going to be playing in the NBA. So let's let's put that out there. You know, let's let's show our cards and say that's the case. In fact, talking to college basketball coaches, they'll tell you that 95 percent of guys on Division one college basketball teams and you can name the team. We're not just talking about the one seats we just referred to. You name any team in the country, basically 95 percent of the guys on those rosters believe they'll be in the NBA one day. So there's certainly a belief anyway from high school players. But what I mean by the NBA um, salary cap structure and all is that. Really what happened was the reason that the players started jumping from high school at the rate that they did had to do with, you know, the NBA's collective bargaining agreement when they put in, you know, uh, a rookie cap and essentially said that, you know, for your first three years, you were going to be restricted by how much you can earn. And agents then started going to high school players and saying, hey, listen, you know, you're a great player. If you go spend four years in college, you're going to be 22 years old after your first contract is up as a rookie you know, three years, four years, whatever the case may be, depending mm-hmm. on how shake out. But let's say you're going to be 25, 26 years old when you're in line for your first mega contract, your first max deal. If you're a superstar of that, of that ilk, why wait till you're 26? So then it started to become, hey, if you're 18, you waited out the three years or you're Kobe Bryant, what have you, you know, you, you, you're 17. Right. You waited out the three years now, all of a sudden you're 20 and you're in line for your next contract. Now you're talking about you can earn a, another big contract over the course of your playing career, which is vital. Yeah. So then, of course, you know, we had the NBA and NCA come together and have the, you know, what, what turned into one and dones, but really saying, you know, hey, we have an age uh, minimum requirement of you to go to the league one year out of high school. And yeah. and when that happened now, it was the same thing. Now it became a rush to have guys come in. So anyway, that's the background. But why that's important is. These guys still want to go to the league as quickly as possible and, and get their contracts as quickly as possible. The the sure. elite teams in the country, the Kentuckys, um, you know, for the most part, Kentucky has embraced the one and done better than anyone else. I, I would right. put it this way. Years ago, um, Sebastian Telfair was coming out and uh, Ian O'Connor wrote a book about Sebastian Telfair leaving, becoming really the first small guard to, to jump from high school to the pros. And right. He had talked about Stefan Marbury, who was a one and done guy in his book. And Stefan Marbury, when he went to Georgia Tech, he said that the coaching staff sort of they never really recovered because of the time and resources they put towards recruiting a guy just to have him stay for a year. Right. Um, and that that set the program back. What Kentucky has done and Duke has sort of embraced it, too, now is the idea that they've sort of set up their programs so that they can handle the defections of a one and done. And they're also embracing it by telling those players, hey, you come here and we're going to do what we can to get you to the pros right away, which is sort of a change in coaching philosophy, certainly for Coach K. But anyway, all that's being said, why that's important is because the, the Kentuckys and Dukes can afford to do that. If you're a school like a, let's say a Clemson, and you have a chance to get a kid that's one and done for multitude of reasons or let's say washington right now they're the perfect case with markel fultz you you are going to get markel fultz and you're going to bring him in and the truth of the matter is if you lose him you're still going to attempt to get him but i think it set washington back to have a guy that's one and done to have 
DeJounte Murray and Marquise Chris last year on the Washington program that people did not think they would be pros after one year. You still want to get the most talented kids in. So I think what's really what we've seen is the schools that can can pull it off and have the structure to maintain it. But then you have these other schools that aren't necessarily equipped to do it. But if they have a chance to get a McDonald's All-American, they're going to take them, even if it means that it may set the program back somewhat, because it also helps you in many respects to have the number one pick in the draft, as in the case of Washington this year, even if you don't make it or Ben Simmons on LSU last year. But where UNC, the final point I'll make on this complicated question, and I'm sorry for being long-winded, but where I think UNC's case is so unique is that UNC falls in the same boat as Duke or even Kentucky. But UNC hasn't necessarily gone after I mean, they're going after the top players in the country. But what makes UNC and Duke and Kentucky unique just in general is that if they're recruiting a kid who, let's say, is top 50, top 100, maybe not necessarily McDonald's All-American or a top 10 kid, because it's Duke or, or North Carolina or Kentucky recruiting them, all of a sudden they move up the <laughs> rankings because people think, wow, North Carolina's on this kid. He must. They're seeing something we're not seeing. But what right. the genius of the the Roy Williams recruiting has been is the idea, and, and Coach K understands this too. He's done this to a certain extent as well, is understanding that you can't just have that top-tier talent guy. You know, it's like getting an elite running back. Like, you, you, you need um, right. guys that can also block, you know, is <laughs> the equivalent sure. in football. And, uh, and guys that understand the team concept and the grinders and all that kind of stuff. You can't just have all type A personalities that are score first guys that don't play defense. So I think that's really where the best teams, I think, understand it. So I, I don't think it's going to change anybody's approach at all. I think if you take a team that's out of the top five and say, do you want to know a kid that has a chance to be one and done and, and a lottery pick? Right. everyone's going to go for them. I just think it's how do you supplement that if you're an elite team? And if you're a middle-of-the-road team, you know, how are you handling your recruiting just in general? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think Kansas is a good example of, like, kind of this mix, right? Because you got a guy mm-hmm. like Frank Mason, which is the heart and soul of that team, four-year senior. You know, very good player. I actually love watching that kid play. You know, yeah, and he's – the NBA he, if you were four inches taller. Exactly. He was a kid that he was actually not on like anyone's recruiting list at the time. And the coaching staff saw Frank Mason and said, we have to have this kid, even though he's being lightly recruited. And I think that takes guts from a program like a Kansas or an Arizona or a North Carolina or Duke to go after kids like that, I think is a very difficult thing to do. And I think that's if anything, that's what coaches should sort of learn from is to go for the kid that fits your program best, regardless of what you know, a lot of the recruiting analysts have to say about about these kids. And, and plus, kids develop over time. And sometimes that's, you know, Tracy McGrady yeah. is a great example, who wasn't a highly touted recruit before his, you know, before he goes to ABCD camp and dominates it. No, you know, he had to get a rare invite to go to that thing. And of course, he jumped right to the pros. But um, to back to the teams, though, that, that we're talking about at the top, and we talk about the, this NBA talent. So, all right, that's the one line. And you would say North Carolina. We've talked about Gonzaga. Villanova. Um, I think what what makes the the Villanova team so interesting, and I, I'm not alone in this thinking, is the idea that they're you know looking to repeat as national champions. And right. you know, you look at the fact that I mean, Jay Wright has done such a fabulous job there and maintain this high level of consistency, high level of play for for Villanova. They're a little bit small for for my liking, um, you know, and uh, but. The one thing I do like about Villanova is that when you watch them play, they get after it. 
There's, there's, there's not a feeling that they're a small team. They understand, they almost, and especially for a team that came off a national championship, you would feel like there's a sense of entitlement, um, of relaxation. And, and that's a credit to that coaching staff. You know, the fact that this team is scrapping and playing like we get no respect and they're coming off a national championship. Uh, what do your numbers say about Villanova? Yeah, the numbers like Villanova a lot. Um, they are actually they just overtook West Virginia as the second ranked team in my team rankings. And you know, Josh Hart's amazing. I mean, mm-hmm. probably his team the third best offensive efficiency um by my numbers. Um you know, one thing I'm looking at right now, and I actually just noticed this when I was prepping for the interview, like their defense has dropped off since last year. I mean, last year they were the third best in terms of defensive efficiency. Uh, they're 16th this year. I don't know if that's a cause for concern. I still think this is a good team that can contend, um, but that's kind of warning sign number one. Warning sign number two is is this team jacks up a lot of threes. And that's one thing I talk about in the book is that, you know, traditionally, at least over the last 15, 16 years, teams that shoot a lot of threes tend to to not win the tournament. And and the idea is that if you're shooting a lot of threes, you're going to have a cold night. And again, it's the idea that you got to win six straight games and the competition doesn't get easier as you get to those last games. Um, so, so Villanova is a team that, again, shoots a lot of threes. And they had a really interesting shift last year where they stopped taking a ton of threes in the tournament. Um, their their percentage went way down. They were going inside a little bit more with Hart and Ochefu. And they also ended up hitting fifty percent of their over 50% of their threes in the tournament, which is about as good as formula for anyone to win the tournament, take less threes, but hit over half of them. So how's that, how is that going to shake out this year? I mean, they're still clearly contenders, but uh, definitely one with a couple of red flags. Yeah. It's, it's funny because in one instance, you know, the, you know, people will talk about how difficult it is to go, you know, repeat as national champions. Um, there's no doubt about that. And you talk about, you know, sometimes when people refer to that, they're referring to the pressure that comes along with it. And it's, it's right. somewhat easy to say that, but, but it's almost like to me, one of those, and and you can go back and look at the numbers and look how you know rare it is for a team to repeat as a national champ. But that's almost one of those statistics that, you know, when you factor in just how difficult again, it is to win six games in a row just in one year. And then yeah. you extrapolate that to two years. Now, now all of a sudden to me, like, Part of the problem with winning just uh, back-to-back national champions is just strictly in the fact that it's it's just difficult to win a national championship anyway, and the odds yep. of that are stacked so so high against you that to then do it two years in a row, just, again, using statistics, it's almost like it doesn't have a bearing necessarily on – that's not causation, I guess, is is sort of what, um, what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I think what you're saying is that you know, it's hard to win a tournament, period. And it's not necessarily better or worse whether you won it last year, right? And, you know, as numbers guys, like, I look at it, it's like, well, let, let's just see. You know, I mean, I personally don't, I don't think defending the championship really means much in terms of how I'm going to assign odds to Villanova or where I'm going to push them, push them up or down. You know, I look at my numbers, I look at, you know, the way they play, and I try to make an assessment there of whether they can win six straight games. Yeah. And 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 the thing I would say, too, is that a lot of times, you know, you look at a team trying to, you know, repeat as a national champion. The first thing that's going to 
strike you right away is the fact that they've lost players to the NBA. Um, that's going to make it difficult right. in today's and, 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 but Villanova wasn't necessarily set up that way. Anyway, they weren't a team that was, you know, ultimately loaded with, um, with NBA type talent. Now, Archie Diacono, right. who didn't stick in the league, but you know, uh, the Spurs had drafted like, you know, a kid like that, they they had the NBA talent, but it wasn't like they were completely barren coming into this year. Like you said, I mean, Josh right. Hart, Chris Jenkins, uh, DiVincenzo, like so they they they're guys that have um they have this this still this extremely talented court Jalen Brunson. And in fact, I, I would say probably you could make the argument that they're even more talented than they were last year. Uh, a lot of people think this Bridges sure. kid, Mikael Bridges, is is the best NBA prospect just on the team altogether. So there's Wait, a, almost all of their talent returned. So yeah, over Hart. I mean, just in terms of long-term potential, I like Hart much better. I like productivity at the college level more than potential, especially when you're seeing it side by side. Um, but but certainly just has all this. Where I, he's actually from uh, Malvern. He, he went to uh, Great okay. Valley, so he's a local local kid for you and I at in uh, southeastern Great. PA. But um, so yeah. But and then the other thing is to me because this year has been so odd and because Villanova sort of probably wasn't respected as much as, you know, some of the, the classic blue bloods are, um, you know, even though they returned a lot of their talent, it almost seems like in a weird way and playing in the big East, that's, you know, a different big East than we remember. I think they, they haven't even faced the pressure that, that uh, previous national champions have, have faced. I mean, it's been a great thing for the program. They're excited about it, but having heart back and, you know, having Jalen Brunson back I, I, and Jenkins, I, I think those guys just sort of feel like, you know, this is uh, th- they're going to be just fine regardless. So yeah. um, I think they're going to be just fine and they're going to be pumped to, to win a tournament. Yeah. That if it's a second yeah. No, no doubt. So we've gone over we've gone over Villanova, Kansas, um, Gonzaga, you you discussed and uh, and North Carolina. Let's. Let's talk about um, some of the people that uh, some of the teams that that uh, Joe Lenardi has on his uh, two line. That's, you know, Oregon, Kentucky, Baylor and Louisville. Out of those four teams, uh, which do your numbers say, you know, has the best chance of of winning this thing? Yeah, I mean, the numbers definitely like Louisville. Um, And and I think it's always kind of bad to go against a. A Rick Pitino team. I mean, this is a, a coach that has never, I don't, I don't think he's ever had a defense that's been outside of the top 10 in terms of efficiency. I mean, it, it's just an unbelievable streak. Like the guy, I don't even, I don't know if he's even kind of known as a defensive coach, but the performance on the court is, um, is amazing on the defensive side of the ball. So they always bring it on defense and it's just a matter of whether they can generate enough offense, uh, to make that six game run. Um, you know, the numbers don't hate, their offense. Uh, I'm looking it up right now. They are, you know, they have the 32nd ranked offensive efficiency, which is not fantastic, and uh, would definitely be the reason why, you know, they they might might not be able to make a run. But they also have the fourth ranked um, defense, and and that's where those teams always bring it. Yeah, Louisville to me is is an interesting one, and and you know you go back to what they've done as of late, and you know they're two and two in their last four games. Now, granted, their losses are at Wake Forest, who has a, a first round pick in in uh, John Collins um, right. as a big man. The people haven't really talked a lot about. He's very talented, um, and then at North Carolina, 
uh, the wins coming against Syracuse and Notre Dame. Um, and, and here's the other thing is that you're playing in the ACC. You talked about strength of schedule earlier. I mean, the idea that, you know, we're talking nine teams from the ACC are going to end up in the, the NCAA tournament. Every night is a dogfight, and uh, certainly right. teams are looking to take the- out Louisville. Go ahead. And that doesn't even include a program like Syracuse, right? So, like, I mean, it's tough. Yeah, I mean, that that's the tricky part. I mean, we, we, we could be looking at, at Syracuse, um, you know, as I, I think we're going to look at Syracuse as an NCAA tournament team, but, the, you know, that we'll see if the committee decides to go in that direction. But that, the idea that you're right, like, even, you know, the back end, there's, there's not an easy night. In, in the ACC. Yeah. I mean, NC State's had a down year, and Dennis Smith is is one of the elite players in the country and, and potentially a top five pick. So it doesn't matter. You do not have a night off in the ACC. Yeah. And I think that is, is you can't say that basically in any other conference. And um, I think that that has to factor in, to, you know, when we start looking like how a team's done in their last 10, if they're playing, you know, nine easy games. And one tough one, it's much different than playing, you know, nine tough games and one pretty good game. So um, yeah. I, I think that's always got to factor in. I, I do think, uh, you know, Donovan, um, Donovan Mitchell is a kid that people are really starting to uh, talk about as just an explosive athlete, explosive player. And uh, he's getting a lot of hype right now. They also have um, uh, a seven foot center, Honest Mahmoud. And, and he's, He's a kid who's legit seven footer, um, and he's a got one of those guys that people don't necessarily talk about. Doesn't put up big numbers for them, but he's had critical stretches in games where he's been a difference maker. And if he starts to play big minutes in the tournament, and I can see that's the thing I think also from coaches. You know, people talk all the time about you know how much does coaching factor in, and and you brought it up. I mean, Rick Pitino and you, what he's known for as a as a defensive coach. But the other thing I think about it is. When you're a seasoned coach, you're a Hall of Fame coach, you're going to have the confidence to do some things uh, that maybe coaches who, not necessarily on the hot seat, but, you know, who maybe haven't had the sustained success uh, aren't going to be able to do. We talk about how players tense up in an NCAA tournament environment, but coaches can as well. And so, you know, to have a coach, you talked about it with Jay Wright. I mean, all of a sudden sort of changing Villanova's uh, offensive philosophy during the NCAA tournament, you'd think would be just right. crazy, but he knows he can do that, you know, and Hey, he had had, you know, teams that were, you know, one seed, two seed the last few years before that. So he, he understood that maybe he had to mix it up come tournament time in order to find think, yeah. uh, some more success. I think, I think he absolutely does. And, you know, I actually found an article before the tournament where he was talking about the three point rate and uh, said, this team has the potential to stop taking so many threes. That's exactly what they did. It was crazy. It was crazy. And, uh, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I would actually, uh, I was hoping we could get down to the three line because one team that we have not conversed about is UCLA. Yes. And this is a team that is really interesting because when they're at their best, they look like the Golden State Warriors. Lonzo Ball is is clearly just such a talent, both, uh, both athletically and also with his vision and his passing. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely a team that the numbers, I mean, second in offensive efficiency in the nation in my numbers. Um, but this is clearly the team with the worst defense of any team that you can imagine winning this tournament. So when I look at adjusted offensive efficiency, they're 81st. And it, it seems to me like they just kind of don't care sometimes. Um, the first half of that Oregon game, the first 10 minutes of that Oregon game, 
when they had him down in, in L.A. I, I've never seen a complete lack of interest in closing out a three-point shooter as that game. They've clearly been better lately. Um, you know, some of the they were they were they were much better in that Arizona one that they had in the desert not too long ago. Um, but numbers wise, like I cannot put this team as one of my primary contenders to win. Even though if they do in fact win the Pac-12 tournament, they're they're going to go up maybe two, maybe knocking on a one seat. So as a Pac-12 guy, I just want to get your take on that team. Well, I think. The first thing that you have to say about UCLA is we're talking about, and this, this, there's no hyperbole here. We're talking about the best shooting team we've seen in yeah. at least a decade, probably a couple decades. And and right. I, I mean, look, you can. We, we talked earlier about one and dones, and and you could factor that in as as a possible reason. But the the truth of the matter is that they can put five guys on the floor who can all shoot the basketball. We saw Wisconsin do that when they reached the national championship game a few years ago, but they didn't shoot it as well as UCLA. You know, I mean, you're talking about Lonzo Ball, who shoots it much better than anyone expected. He also shoots it deeper than than people thought that he would. (laughs) So that's a problem. And shoots it off the bounce like – you know, listen, I'm not making Steph Curry comparisons, completely different players, but but the one thing that they they do have in common is the idea that they both can shoot it really well off the dribble, which changes the complete complexity of, of the game and, and how a defense has to approach you because it spreads the floor that much deeper, you know, that 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 much higher up right. on the perimeter. So so you got Lonzo Ball. Bryce Alford is basically the yeah. best three-point shooter in, in UCLA school history, um, you know, who's dominated right. the point well, the got, last couple of years, plays the two he's got great out. teams for it. Yes. Yeah, and, I, and I feel like it's been incredible because, like, you just you take a, you take a guy like that like, who can shoot and you say, you don't need to handle the ball anymore. And it's just, you know, 45% from behind the three. He's the first UCLA player to go over 100 threes in a season. And, you know, and listen, credit to him. He's accepted this role. He was, you know, the ball dominant guard on, on UCLA the last couple of years. And people were complaining, you know, UCLA fans were complaining about it. They hated what having him doing like it. it? it was, uh, to, to, to handle the ball or to shoot it? No, to shoot it. I, I, I would figure he would love this role. It's just like, hey, I just get open and I shoot. No? I, 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 th- I can't get in his head. But from, from what I – look, the last couple of years, I think he liked playing the point guard position. I think he saw maybe mm-hmm. there was a potential you know pro contract in it for him if he's a point guard at his size. And also the fact that he um, – you know, he's, he likes to dribble. He's creative with the ball on, on some level. So he likes to create his own shot. But that being said, it, it speaks to the talent of Lonzo Ball that Bryce Alford was willing to to switch off the ball. I mean, that yeah. like there was just the, his dad is the coach and he's been handling the ball and, and being their you know, dominant ball handler the last few years. And he was willing to move off the ball, which just speaks to, you know, how how talented Lonzo Ball is and also the kind of personality Lonzo Ball has that it, there isn't friction there. They actually get along. Um, and then Holiday, the youngest Holiday brother, um, you know, is going to be an NBA guard also. And he's their sixth man. He comes mm-hmm. off the bench. So so right there, you know, you have excellent guard play with those guys. We, we talked about just the shooting. Thomas Welsh, who plays the four and the five. TJ Leaf, um, can both shoot from the outside. TJ Leaf great at, at, at shooting trail threes. And then uh, Isaac Hamilton, who's had stretches in his career where he's gone, you know, 20 and a half, 30 in a game. So you can put five guys who are excellent shooters on the floor. And I think it just automatically causes issues because no team can 
is going to practice against a situation like that. No team's going to play against a situation like that. And and when you're playing defense at the college level, it's not a complacency issue. It's just sort of trying to be efficient. You're not going to always chase everyone. And yeah. with UCLA, you can't leave these guys. The other thing I like about their shooting is that, you know, I've talked about this at length, the idea that you play in sometimes some emptier gyms. You know, the crowds aren't great. You got weird... Um, you know, sight lines with the, with, um, you know, your depth perception based upon that you're playing in these weird arenas that weren't necessarily made for, for basketball. And so because of all that stuff, you're going to have maybe a guy or two go cold. UCLA will not have all of their players go cold. There's always someone that's right. going to shoot the ball well. So you're right. It all comes down to their defense. It's gotten better uh, throughout the season, but still right. lackluster. So they're the team to me that that is really shocking. Although then again, I sort of feel because their offense is so good that it almost guarantees them a chance to get to the to the Sweet 16 because I just don't think offensively they're going to face a team in the first two rounds that can keep up with them. At that point, right. it's a crapshoot, but I think the first two rounds, I think you're pretty safe uh, picking UCLA yeah. to, to go through. Um, Ed, I want to ask you, I want to just go back to the two line for a moment and ask you about Oregon because another mm-hmm. Pac-12 school and – to me, they're incredibly deep. Again, they check the boxes. Great rim protection. Dylan Brooks is a guy that three times this year has hit game-winning baskets. Clutch player. I don't know if you if you uh, believe in clutch or not based upon your analytics, which you can answer that too. But your just your overall thoughts on Oregon. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me take the clutch thing real quick because like my because clutch exists because people do hit shots uh, in late. Right. Um, in late game situations that win the game, and that's clutch. The The question is, you know, whether your clutch performance right now is able to predict clutch performance in the future. And the numbers suggest that that's not a predictive stat going into the future. And we know the most from baseball. Uh, people have been trying to look for clutch hitting for years. No one ever has really found just the signature of it. Um, so, anyway, clutch exists, but it's just about whether that can predict the future. Um, and, Wait, and can Oregon's I ask you a question, really... Ed, before, before you go into Oregon, about Clutch? Because I've yeah. always been curious about sure. this. Yeah, Could it possibly be? I've, I've always wondered this, because I think people always look for players that raise their level of play late. Mm-hmm. Could it simply be that certain players are willing to just maintain their level, maintain their poise, composure, what have you, uh, these these human elements, if you will, is it possible that they're doing it, but in late game situations, you know, our human instinct is to get nervous, to get scared, and so that the right. the the play of others seems to go down. Yeah, I mean that's certainly possible. I also think you gotta definitely, definitely a possibility. But I think you also have to kind of look at it. You know, I think athletics naturally selects against people that aren't clutch or people that are going to get nervous. So, for example, the last, last intramural basketball game I played at Stanford was a hot mess because it was the playoffs, and I didn't really know which basket to shoot at. So I've been selected out because I'm not clutch. But by the time you get to the college basketball level, you know, like these guys have all performed at pretty high levels on the high school basketball level on the AAU circuit. And, you know, I think the tendency is you're going to see less of that. By the time you will it down to professional baseball players that make it to the major leagues, um, there is all those guys have been clutched in the past. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't have made it that far. Hmm. Does that make sense? Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it does. All right, so on to Oregon now. 
Yeah, Oregon. You know, it, this is. I think this is a team that we've kind of gone back on, and that we really kind of uh, disagree in some sense. Like, you know, the twenty third on offense, nineteenth on defense in terms of my adjusted points per possession, and that just numbers wise, that's just not high enough for me to really give them like even a top ten um, win probability for the tournament. Um, you know, I understand they do they do have a lot of the pieces, but um, just just numbers wise, uh, I just don't see them making it. Uh, far enough, you know. It doesn't mean that they won't, because you can obviously have a great tournament and, and make it pretty far, um, as we've seen with the the Butlers and uh, the VCU's of the world. But it's just a hard team to make the case for by numbers. Yeah, and and from my perspective, the the reason that I like Oregon, I mean, we we talk their their depth is great, and and some of the other play, which I think is like I've said, so important when you get to the NCAA tournament guards that can be composed for you. Casey Benson last year, who's taken a step back. His role has changed as well. He's been another guy like Alford who's who's um, changed based upon the new personnel and really accepted his role in a great way. Uh, you know, he led the country last year in assist to turnover ratio. I think it was like five to one, which is just unheard of. Um, but, but all that being said, I think one of the factors through Oregon was, you know, early on in the season, they didn't have Dylan Brooks. Um, and they're, yep. they're, they started the season two and two and didn't have Dylan Brooks. And, you know, since right. that, you're talking about a team that's what, 24 and two the rest of the way. Um, and they yeah. face some, some pretty serious competition in the Pac 12. Now, granted, Pac 12 is top heavy and it's not like they've had a, you know, there's been dominance over, uh, over their opponents in terms of, you know, they split with UCLA and it could be argued UCLA should have won both games. Um, you know, they did beat Arizona, but it was on Oregon's home floor and they don't they don't lose games like that. Um, in road games this year, they are seven and three, which leads me to a question again that goes back. NCAA tournament games are considered neutral. But in yeah. terms of the numbers that you view, which is a more accurate representation of how a team will play on a neutral floor? Is it looking at how they've actually done at home or how they've done on the road? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like, I hate to make too much of home-road splits just because the sample size is really small, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. a team's mm-hmm. probably playing, like, 14, 15 true road games during the course of the season, and it's just, you know, I mean, if, if if they happen to perform really bad on the road and really good at home, does that really mean their home court advantage is great? I mean, probably not. I mean, we could probably look at more years to, to try to figure that out. Um, you know, the mathematician in, in me will definitely tell you, like, let's just look at them uh, let's look at all their games together and and use all the data that we can to try to get the best picture of this Oregon team. Now, you did mention that Dylan Brooks wasn't um, there for the first four games of the season, and that will definitely hurt them in, in the, the team-based rankings that, I, that I've been telling you about. Um, so uh, in those rankings, every game is weighted equally. Okay? And so that's a decision I made. Um, when I do the market rankings, I tend to weight more recent games much more heavily. Um, so, for example, that first game of the year will have a weight, maybe 5% of what their last game would be weighted. And so in those rankings, Oregon's 13th, which is much better than they hmm. do in the team rankings, in which I think they're they're 18th. Um, so I think the markets have kind of adjusted and said, you know, this is a pretty good team. Um, this is a better team, and they've gotten better with Dylan Brooks. But it's also not a team that they're saying – top 10, top five material either. 
Well, it'll be interesting to see how that how that weighs yeah, out um, as, as time goes on. So, so Ed, as uh, as we start to wrap this thing up, I just I want to run through just some teams. We'll do this rather quickly. That um, that I feel like could still make a deep tournament run. And then after mm-hmm. that, I want to get your take on, and and I want your opinion on those teams. And then and then your take on some teams that um, you know are showing up high, and you know that they won't necessarily barely have uh, you know top four seeds let's say um right so so first of all um the one team that i guess we didn't talk about is duke and i i, I was higher on them but as the season c- continues to progress i'm still disappointed that we haven't seen that top level of dominance from duke that i expected um yep. and it goes back to my point guard thing and and it's funny because the one team I took flack from a guy on on Twitter because I count, you know, I basically have said that from 2005-2015, the um, you know, every every team that won the national champion had an NBA point guard. Um, right. Duke is the one team that you could argue that that there's an asterisk there because of Nolan Smith is who I count, even though John Shire was the predominant point guard. But there's sort of a combo guard situation there for both of them. And I this year's Duke team even more so. Frank Jackson, to me, is the key to that team. He's a freshman that that's really, when he's playing well for Duke at the point guard position, he can actually set up the Grayson Allens, Luke Kennards, and Jason Tatums of the world. Um, so, I don't know. That's my big issue with Duke. I thought they'd still be able to overcome it. I'm trying to look past what my own my own theory says. You know, hey, if you don't really have an NBA caliber point guard, then, you know, you're not going to have this success. Uh, what do your numbers say about Duke? Yeah, I mean, the numbers don't like Duke in that they're, they're 14th in my team base rankings. But you got to remember, Duke was the number one team in the preseason AP poll, which is a really yep. surprising predictor of tournament performance. So the idea there is that when before we've seen any games, these sports writers are very good judges of talent. Or maybe not any one sports writer, but like an aggregate uh, sports right, writer is right, pretty right. good at predicting what the actual talent is. And no one's doubting the talent of this team. It's just whether they can put it together um, this late in the season. Um, you know, I, I, I would actually buy on Duke um, for that reason alone. Um, you know, they're uh, fourth or fifth in my market, fifth in my market rankings right now. So the markets definitely haven't given up on this team. And, um, you know, I, I think the Jackson kid is good, but I, I just haven't seen him set up the other players. Like, I still feel it's like yes. a drive and kick and a drive and shoot kind of team with Kennard and Allen. And, you know, it, they, they would be better off getting some easier looks. Um, but clearly, they have the talent and team I would buy. Yeah, uh, it, well, it's interesting too. You you look at the the history of that team, and uh, Tyus Jones was a guy they expect. You talk about the one and dones and where it hurts. So I think the unexpected one and dones hurt you more than anything right. you can imagine. Tyus Jones, right. a guy at Duke, that all of a sudden he leaves early. So no one expected that, but they won the national championship. So he leaves uh, playing in the NBA. And then Derek Thornton was a backup and all of a sudden doesn't think he's going to get the minutes. See some other talented guys come. He transfers to USC. So that's sort of why they're devoid of the position. So you could blame that on the one-and-dones. But again, an unexpected one-and-done situation, not one that you sort of planned for. So a victim of their own success, if you will. Okay, so that's Duke. Some teams that I really like that, other people maybe not as high on Virginia, Purdue are are the two biggies. I've I've said Notre Dame, but but Virginia and Purdue really stand out. I love 
how tough both these teams are. I I, I am um, you know, I always gush about London Parentis. I think he's a guy that NBA scouts aren't loving necessarily right now, but I do think he's going to be an NBA player. He does everything for Virginia, and he just he he's his composure level is so amazing to me at a point as a point guard and really does a great job of setting guys up. Um, and then for Purdue, I mean, Caleb Swanigan's a beast, but they're just big up front with Isaac Haas. And um, they can also shoot the basketball. I, I feel like both of they're the class of the, uh, the, the big, the big 10. So Ryan Klein for me yeah. is a key, key guy for them. And uh, yeah. So anyway, um, what do you, what is your take on those two teams? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty high on Virginia. I mean, the numbers like them better than I think the public perception is of them. They're not a very sexy team by any stretch of the imagination, um, but they'll be a lot higher in numbers than they will be in the public perception. And, you know, Parentes is fantastic. I actually was just talking to a guy from the Bucks this weekend who ended up drafting Malcolm Brogdon, and he was telling me how the numbers didn't like Brogdon because he didn't do anything particularly well, but he's obviously been a fantastic rookie. And mm-hmm. perhaps a lot of the same things are going to apply to Parentes as well. And then Purdue is a team that I'm kind of selling a little bit. I mean, I've seen them play. Uh, they lost to Michigan, although that was mostly because they just didn't really want to play defense for a half, um, hmm. which is not characteristic of that team. Uh, the only the only reason I sell them, I love Swan again. I think he's fantastic. Uh, I always worry when you all of a sudden have four guys shoot in, in, in excess of 40% from the three-point range all of a sudden. It could happen. It could mm-hmm. happen that all those guys just went back and sh- shot a ton. But Purdue's never been known for having perimeter players or developing perimeter players. So you do kind of worry that's a little bit of luck, and that's something that can is going to evaporate in the tournament. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, and then the other one for me that I would say, on the outside looking in, and and I've it, I've sort of started to to sell on this team, if you will, but. But that's Notre Dame. I, I love Matt Farrell as a point guard. Um, again, I, I have a thing for point guards, as, as you probably know it. And then um, you know, Bonzi Colton, I think, is a unique talent, a go-to guy for them. Uh, Vesturia. I, I just think this team, um, you know, has sort of checks the boxes for a lot of things that that I think it takes to have the successful run. And you know, they always play hard. So, but that being said. It doesn't necessarily always trans. It hasn't translated into the the great regular season that I thought they would have. But as I keep going over and trying, you know, it's when you trust your your formula or trust what you what got you there, if you will. Um, that's the one thing that I, I keep holding on to Notre Dame for. So, your thoughts on <laughs> right. Notre Dame? Yeah, I mean Notre Dame is is a sense of a team that's going to be great on offense, um, and that is never going to be as great on defense. I'm the 66 in my defensive number. But with that said, like that didn't stop them from taking Kentucky all the way to the limit uh, a couple of years back. So, you know, a team that I think they can make a run, probably not a team I'm too excited about uh, in terms of winning everything. And Ed, give me a, a team or two that you think, based upon your numbers, like people should at the very least be keeping an eye on at this point. Based on numbers? I mean, you know, West Virginia is, is a numbers team. Uh, probably a little overrated by numbers, but I'm I still think they can give people a little bit of a game. You know, I think the I think they're better than the public perception is. Uh, very talented team, shares the ball on offense, and uh, definitely a team to look out for. Okay, is there a team that's showing up um, on your rankings that that we won't see as a top four seed, but they're they're somehow popping up on on your calculations? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the market's still like Wisconsin. I know they've played awful lately, um, but that's potentially a team that, you know, at least Sweet 16 potentially. Hmm. So maybe give maybe give a one seed a pretty tough game in the second round. Ed, I uh, I cannot thank you enough. I love talking to you. I love your approach to to analytics and and this book. I cannot speak highly enough about it. How to win your NCAA tournament pool, Ed. Tell people how you can get Ed Fang's How to Win Your NCAA Tournament Pool book. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you go to winpoolbook.com, and uh, it'll give you all the details, and you can get the book or, um, you know, become a member of my site and get all the detailed bracket advice that I'll be giving to my members, which will include Adam Stankel's opinion, too, because I, I respect your opinion a lot. Well, thank you very much, Ed. And, uh, yeah. Awesome stuff. Please pick up this book. Ed Fang, thanks again for for jumping on the Great Point Podcast. Thank you, Adam. Appreciate it. All right, so that's Ed Fang. You can follow Ed on Twitter at the Power Rank. Trust me, you're going to want to check out what Ed has to say, especially as we get closer to this uh, NCAA tournament. Of course, if you're a college football fan, Ed is probably the best source to go to to figure out who's going to win college football games. Uh, that'll do it for this episode of the podcast. Really appreciate you listening in. Uh, you can find me, Adam Stanko, on Twitter at NaismithLives. And the podcast is on Twitter at GreatPointPod. That'll do it for me. We'll catch you next time.